Welcome to Disaffected. I'm Joshua Slocum, and this is the show where we talk about politics, culture, and relationships through a psychological lens. And we are coming to you, as always, from dystopian Burlington, Vermont. None of our institutions in the West are trustworthy anymore. All the universities have fallen to woke Marxism. The major medical organizations endorse lifelong surgical child abuse that they call gender-affirming care. Doctors and therapists are losing their licenses to practice if they won't vivisect children's bodies and their minds. Every major media outlet is fully woke compromised. They lie all day, every day, about everything. Take a moment to let it sink in what kind of bad trouble we're really in. Trouble that we may never get out of. Trouble that may spark a civil war. Trouble that has already ended what the United States used to be. God knows who we'll be in 10 years. But at least we'll be saying the right words if the American Academy of Pediatrics has anything to say about it, and they do. You'll recall that a couple of years ago, the American Academy of Pediatrics erased an entire section of their website. That section discussed the importance of children's emotional and intellectual development and how much of it was based on seeing facial expressions and connecting them to emotions and tone of voice. This was necessary for language acquisition and emotional processing. We all know this. The AAP knew this, but they disappeared that section of their website three years ago. They blanked it. They unhistoried it. And then they refused to acknowledge that they did it. People tried to talk to them and it was stone silence. Why? Well, so that they could claim that children who were not in any danger at all from COVID needed to be masked all day every day, everywhere. Why does the American Academy of Pediatrics hate children? No, I'm not joking. I'm not being hyperbolic when I ask that, I mean that. Why do they hate children? If they loved children, they would not be advocating for the worst form of child abuse we have ever seen in human history sex changes on children. The only thing, you know what? I'll, I'll walk that back a little bit. There are worse things we've seen, like child sacrifice in, in the Aztec culture. Doesn't, doesn't make you feel very much better, does it? If the American Academy of Pediatrics loved children and cared about children, they would not have worked to retard America's children by urging parents to cover their faces and their children's faces for years at the expense of a child's developing language and emotional skills. And they're not stopping, the AAP, they're not stopping. These are slides that came from an AAP conference. They had to be leaked, of course. This one uh, is provided by the Manhattan Institute researcher, Lior Sapir, and it says this. Gender diverse youth. What this is? This is an in service apparently for 
pediatric practitioners to help them understand how best to interact with the children who come to see them in their doctor's office. So title, Gender Diverse Youth. What do you call your parts? There are two columns. Left column is renaming feminine parts. The right column is renaming masculine parts. Oh, and by the way, the words masculine and feminine are in scare quotes, as if those were, <laughs> I mean, we call them feminine, we call them masculine, but that's not real. God. So how do we rename feminine parts? Any front hole, dick or dicklet, in parentheses, clitoris, T-penis, as in testosterone penis, chest slash chesticles. Yes, chesticles. Moving over to the right side, here's how we rename masculine parts. Audi, junk, strapless, and bits. What does strapless mean? That you're strapless, it's your strapless deck. Just strapless. I know, I know. You're you're scratching your head. I was too. You know what that means? Lesbians, tradi <laughs> the traditional lesbian strap-on. <laughs> it is unfortunately a lesbian tradition. Um, I mean, not that I, I, ladies, get up to whatever you want to in bed, okay? It's it's cool. Really, I don't need to hear it. Um. So, a boy's actual penis is now defined in reference to its lack of artificial straps. It's the strap-on that's the real dick. See? <laughs> wow. Let's go to the next slide. Now, wait. Do you ever remember your doctor? Your, when you were a child, did your doctor ever speak to you this way about this subject matter? Do you recall when your children were young your pediatrician speaking this way to your children, does this sound normal to you? So next slide. Sexuality terms, frequently asked questions. Point one, what is the difference between bisexual and pansexual? Answer, bi, attraction to both genders. Notice that, genders, not sexes, genders. And they say, it assumes there are two genders. God, what a stupid assumption. Pan, pansexual is defined as attraction to all genders, regardless of gender, and it recognizes the multiplicity of gender. Paradigm of heterosexual slash homosexual slash bisexual. It says... Hetero, attracted to opposite. If you are assigned male, identify as female, and attracted to females, are you hetero, homo? It's unclear if these terms relate to genitals or gender, hence need for new language. No, it's not at all unclear. You are deliberately making it unclear to create the alleged need for the new language because you are a bunch of postmodern Foucauldian Marxist perverts masquerading as children's healthcare providers. 
that's why. Assumes there's two genders. Notice how they've disappeared biological sex. As if they don't deal, as if doctors themselves do not deal with actual sexed human bodies in their offices every day, often naked bodies. They can see the reality of biological sex. They even touch it. How do I know? I've been to a doctor. <laughs> uh, uh, the lesson in this is anyone at all, anyone at any level of society, of any level of professionalism, can be made to tell any lie at all at any time. There is no profession, no degree, no rung on the social ladder that acts as a prophylactic to this. Everyone, everyone, even the smartest people, especially the smartest people actually, can be made to tell these lies and act like they're not telling lies. We're getting a real lesson in what humans are really like these past, certainly these past three years, but definitely these past seven or eight years. We're kind of shit, aren't we? So how about this? Here's the next one. Final slide from this presentation that was leaked. How to ask teens about sex. <clears throat> Basic guidelines. Ask consent. No assumptions. Use gender neutral language. So do not, pediatrician, do not recognize that you have a boy in there. Do not use words that have masculine connotations. Be gender neutral. Here's a suggested question. Is it okay if I ask you some personal questions that I ask all young people? Why are you asking young people this at all? Next suggestion, open-ended questions. How would you describe your sexuality? And then the, the stage directions are allow to self-label or no label, allow flexibility. Yes, the awkward grammar as in the original. Again, these are, these are our best and brightest. These are our most highly educated people. Don't assume that LGBT-identified youth are having sex or that they are only having sex with certain genders, exclamation point. Another last, last suggestion. Tell me a little bit about how you have explored sex and intimacy. Is your pediatrician a member of the American Academy of Pediatrics? Ask her why she's part of a pedophile organization and then fire her. Don't let your children ever be in a room alone with these people. Do not give these people business. Yes. Fire her. Fire him. Your children are better off not going to the doctor in 2023. Now, in 2020, a criminal thug named George Floyd died on camera after trying to pass off a fake $20 bill to buy cigarettes and getting the cops called on him for it. He was extremely high on drugs, fentanyl specifically. 
George Floyd died on camera in what looked like an instance of a police officer bearing his knee down on his neck and preventing him from breathing. Derek Chauvin is that police officer. Well, it turns out that George Floyd died of a fentanyl overdose, not from being strangled, not from having his windpipe crushed. The autopsy showed no signs of injury to his windpipe. I have a confession to make. Back in 2020, um, I think this was the last gasp of my adherence to any beliefs in leftism. I made a real hash out of my last gasp. I wrote in public, it was on Facebook actually, I probably said it in other places as well. I wrote in 2020 that I could tell by watching that video of the interaction between Derek Chauvin and George Floyd, I could tell that I was looking at a murderous psychopath just by seeing the expression on his face while he did it. That's what I wrote. <sighs> that was stupid. It was more than stupid. It was, it was grossly irresponsible. I'm sorry that I said it. I wish I hadn't. No, if you're, if you're wondering, I'm going to anticipate you. No, I'm not going to therefore say that I've been wrong to make any and all judgments that I've made on this show about any person based on how they act, how they hold their face, the way they dress themselves. I'm not going to give that to critics if that's what you're hoping for. It's not wrong and it's not out of bounds to make provisional judgments about people based on how they arrange their faces, how they carry themselves, the clothes they wear, the metal they put in their faces, the colors that they dye their hair with. That's not out of bounds. It's not a moral sin, and it's not completely wrong. But in the case of George Floyd and Derek Chauvin, I had no context at all other than the immediate emotional hysteria and the gathering narrative that was forming, that I was helping to form. I was helping to form that narrative against Derek Chauvin. And I allowed crowd anger to carry me along. Well, now we find out that there was almost certainly what the Brits call a stitch-up to put Derek Chauvin in jail no matter what. Of course, we actually, we didn't just find this out. You may remember this. I, I want you to rifle through the card catalog in your head. Look it up, Gen Z. Look it up. If you don't remember... We knew from the initial autopsy that was released maybe a month after George Floyd's death that they had found lethal amounts of fentanyl in him. We also knew in 2020, not just yesterday, in 2020, we knew that the medical examiner didn't find any evidence of suffocation. I remember reading this in several different places. I read about it then, but it wasn't allowed to be true then. And if you mentioned that you had even seen that report, you were called a racist. And then everyone claimed to forget. So as we turn to a couple of clips from Tucker Carlson's show, I want you to go into this remembering that Tucker and me and anybody else, we did not just discover this today in 2023. This was already known. Can you roll that clip, please, Kevin? Now that we know that it was not, in fact, a pandemic of the unvaccinated, now that we know that Ukraine is not actually winning the war against Russia, 
it could be time to revisit some of the other slogans we've been assured are true and ordered to repeat. Are they, in fact, true? Did, for example, a racist white cop actually murder a man called George Floyd, a civil rights leader, in Minneapolis on Memorial Day of 2020? Now, we've been told that that happened, told it relentlessly for more than three years. So at this point, we've been told it so much that pretty much everybody seems to believe it. And because everyone does kind of believe it, a small group of people has been allowed to make massive changes to American society. They include, but are not limited to, decriminalizing stealing, defunding the police, adding a new federal holiday to the calendar called Juneteenth, the ceasing of hiring all white men in corporate America, and of course, significantly, they also sent a cop called Derek Chauvin to prison for more than 40 years. He would be the racist white devil who murdered George Floyd. But the question is, did he actually murder George Floyd? And the answer is, well, no, he didn't murder George Floyd. And we're not guessing about that. We know it conclusively, thanks to a new court case now underway in Hennepin County, Minnesota. The case was brought by a prosecutor there called Amy Sweezy. She's suing her boss. So the case is not actually about George Floyd or Derek Chauvin, but it tells you an awful lot about both of them. In her deposition, which you should read, Amy Sweezy describes a conversation that she had with the county medical examiner, Andrew Baker, right after George Floyd died. Quote, I called Dr. Baker early that morning to tell him about the case and to ask him if he would perform the autopsy on Mr. Floyd. Sweezy recalls all this under oath in the deposition. Quote, he called me later in the day on that Tuesday and he told me that there were no medical findings that showed any injury to the vital structures of Mr. Floyd's neck. There were no medical indications of asphyxia or strangulation. Interesting, huh? No medical indications of asphyxia or strangulation. Why are we talking about this now? Why weren't we talking about it when that same autopsy, which was done in 2020, came out in 2020? Why didn't that matter? Why wasn't that part of the record? How did this court case proceed and have the outcome that it did? One more clip from Tucker's show. This was not a killing. It was yet another narcotics OD in a country that courts more than 100,000 of them every year. The medical examiner clearly understood that and, in fact, articulated it. And Sweezy explains. He said to me, she recalls in the deposition, Amy, what happens when the actual evidence doesn't match up with the public narrative that everyone's already decided on? And then he said, quote, this is the kind of case that ends careers. In other words, everyone lied about it from the very beginning. This is the kind of case that ends careers. Well, it didn't end his career, did it? Because everyone lied about it, just like Tucker said. If I had a group of people in front of me right now in this room who believe that Derek Chauvin murdered George Floyd, I, I, I think I'd try. I think I'd throw this out to them and see if it was possible, if they had the mental capacity to take that information in and to change their minds. I know they're not gonna do it right in front of me. But I honestly wonder at this point, is there any point to this? Does this matter? I'm not sure it does. For, for enough people 
a majority of the people? I don't think it does. I think people wanted to send him to prison no matter what. And I believe that even if the jurors knew that, I, how could the jurors not have known this? How could they not have known this? They read the autopsy report. They sent him to prison anyway, Derek Chauvin. Justice. Give me a break. We're in a bad way. So now what happens? Nothing. Nothing happens. Derek Chauvin rots in jail for the rest of his life. That's it. No one will be forced to admit anything. <laughs> they certainly won't have a conscience and speak up about it. They don't care about their sin. They don't care what they've done to that cop and that man. They like what they've done, and they like what they've done to our country. All of this, all this destruction of our cities throughout 2020, the burning down of federal buildings, the, riot, the BLM riots, the crime rate that's gone through the fucking roof, our police infrastructure, which is about ready to fall apart because what sane man or woman would sign up to be a cop in this atmosphere? Defund the police, justice now, send the social workers, get the pigs out. For a criminal piece of shit, George Floyd was a piece of shit. He was a violent criminal who'd been convicted multiple times before. He was a drug addict. He was a drug runner. He participated in armed robberies. He was a scumbag. But he got to be deified because he black. Uh-huh. <laughs> what a joke. God bless America. Now, speaking of psychopaths, take a look at these two. This is 18-year-old Jesus Ayala and his friend 16-year-old, I'll do my best, Jazamir Keys. Why do they have mugshots? Well, because of this video of their actions, here they are deliberately hitting in a motor vehicle, a 72-year-old bicyclist on the highway for fun. Boom, 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 boom. Boom, 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 boom. It's very amusing, isn't it? It's funny. Here they are, these same two. These same two. Here they are doing the same thing in a vehicle at retired police chief Andreas Probst, whom they killed. I warn you, you're going to watch him be killed. I go.
Ha, ha, ha. Okay. I got one more. Got one more performance from these fine, fine young men for you. This is a short clip. Those of you listening won't know this, so I'm going to describe to you what you would see if you were watching. The camera is focused on these two. They're having a hearing in court. They are laugh laughing and giggling behind. They've got their hands in front of their face, and they're making gestures at the family. They're flipping. the fa They're taunting the family in court. Take, take a look. You'll hear what the family speaking. Um, they were flipping us off. All, I would say about three or four different times, they flipped us off, flipping each other off, joking around with each other, definitely not taking anything serious whatsoever. That was a family member of retired police officer Andreas Probst, whom they killed in cold blood, laughing about it. This is psychopathy. Specifically, it is sadistic psychopathy. Not all psychopaths are sadists. All psychopaths, all psychopaths entirely lack empathy and entirely lack consciences. But not all psychopaths take affirmative pleasure in the suffering of others. That's the definition of sadism. Not all psychopaths are sadists. These two are. Oh, and if you're wondering, if you're wondering if, uh, well, Josh, aren't you contradicting yourself? Didn't you say earlier in this segment that you could tell that Derek Chauvin was a psychopath just by looking at him? No, I'm not contradicting myself. As I said earlier in this segment, I had no context other than the video of what I was seeing in the height of big emotional hysteria <coughs> about Black Lives Mattering and nasty white pig cops. I made a stupid error in judgment. I'm not making an error in judgment here. These bastards, these demonic little bastards, taped themselves. They filmed themselves doing it. They admitted it. They killed. They did it for fun. I have zero problems calling them the obvious psychopaths that they are. Bum, 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 bum. <laughs> bum, 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 bum. You know, I can't wait for them to get some bum, 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 bum in prison, if they get prison. And I don't care that that little son of a bitch is 16 years old either. He's still a psychopath. <sighs> These are the most dangerous types of psychopaths, the sadists. They cannot be cured. They cannot be treated. There is no treatment. Oh, they'll get treatment in prison. They'll get court-mandated psychiatric treatment which of course doesn't exist because psychopaths can't be treated and everybody in the mental health profession knows that. But what it will do is teach these young men how better to manipulate prison officials and prison psychiatrists in order to get what they want. In short, it will make them more dangerous. The only way to protect people from psychopaths like this is permanent prison with no possibility of parole or death. 
we've got a choice to make. All right, we're going to wrap this segment up here. And as we take you out, we want to ask for your support. Do you like Disaffected? Do you get something here you don't get from other shows? We'd love to have you help us make it. There's two main ways to help support this show. You can go to our Substack, which is Substack, excuse me, disaffectedpod.substack.com. And there's a lot of writing over there. Some of it is uh, is members only. So if you sign up there, you'll get access to our paywalled archives. Um, you can also choose Subscribestar, subscribestar.com slash disaffected. And you sign up as a subscriber and you get access to our Discord, which is chat rooms with video and lots of stuff. We've got more than 400 people in there who are also show supporters and a lot of different topic rooms, lots of conversation going on. We'd love to see you there. Um, see you after the break. Can't get enough of our love, baby? That's because you're not subscribed. Move that thumb over to the great big old subscribe button on your podcast app so you never miss an episode. We put out audio-only exclusive content that you won't get on any other video platform, so make sure you subscribe today. Looking for a non-woke place to put your money where your mouth is? Put it where my mouth is. Disaffected supporters get access to our private Discord chat server, backstage episode recording sessions, surprise guests, and more, and all it takes is $10 a month. You've got two options. Either Substack, visit us at disaffectedpod.substack.com, or go over to subscribestar.com slash disaffected. Remember, choose the $10 level or higher for Discord access. Welcome back. I'm going to complain about women. <laughs> and instead of a grocery store story, this is a pizza shop story and a city dump story. So I saw an Instagram post uh, the other day. I should have been more prepared. I was going to put this in the show this week, but then uh, things got mixed up uh, at the end and I didn't didn't have the graphics. So I'm just going to describe to you this post. Um, it's a paraphrase. Uh, it was a post from a restaurant owner in Brooklyn. And yes, I did look behind it. It does appear that it was, in fact, uh, a real post. I can't confirm that 100 percent, but I find it very believable. It's it's quite in it's quite in keeping with, uh, frankly, the way middle class women um, are acting in America these days. This um, restaurant owner named Liz uh, wrote an Instagram post about how we expect a 20% minimum tip for our servers. And if you're not prepared to tip 20%, then you need to stay home. And if you don't like that and you think that you can do better, then why don't you get your own fancy glassware? Why don't you get some mood lighting and put it on dimmers and blah, 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 blah. If you don't want to pay for the experience of being in our restaurant and blah, 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 blah. This is, this is a restaurant owner saying this front-facing to customers, right? And she ends it this way. And if you have a problem with a woman having the agency to tell you about this, well, then just go buck wild in the comments. I don't care. Liz. Yeah, Liz, fuck you. Okay, I wouldn't eat at your goddamn restaurant if I was starving and neither would any sensible person. You, when did this start happening? When when did this 
this customer hostility. I have been talking about this since we started the show in early 2021. I have been talking about how it's not we went from this like ridiculous every people used to say the customer is always right. Now, I was a waiter, a waiter, a backup bartender, uh, a catering waiter for a combined total of about 12 years uh, off and on. A uh, good eight or nine years at a stretch. I, I made good money in the restaurant business for a young person. Um, it was fast paced. I had a hell of a lot of fun. Uh, I drank a lot of my tips. <laughs> That's what happens. So I have been in retail. I have been a waiter. I've been a bartender. I know just exactly how bad customers can be. And we all used to complain all the time about restaurant owners who would make us take what we felt was excessive amounts of guff from customers. So I think we spent some time in this country being way too deferential. Customers always right. Customers always right. That often turned into businesses that allowed employees to be abused, not just complained at by customers, but abused by customers. So I have I have seen this from both sides and, and, and both sides of this coin have reasonable points to make. But we have overcorrected all the way in the other direction. It is now normal in this country. And it's across sectors. It's restaurants, it's furnace installers, it's roofing companies. It's It doesn't matter who you do business with. They are customer hostile. And Liz, the Brooklyn restaurant owner, is just a great example of it. She'll suffer no consequences from this. Oh, and she's, you know, and because she's a woman who has agency. You know what, do you know what, you know what my definition of feminism is? The ability to be a bitch without ever being called a bitch. That's feminism. <laughs> so, Ken's Pizza Pub on Church Street in Vermont. I'm going to have to make sure to tag you guys on Twitter because I want you to see this. Uh, not you guys, you ladies, because this is clearly um, bitchcraft that they're practicing here. You see on your screen Ken's Pizza Pub. Uh, this is uh, an institution downtown, been, been there a long time. They've got a sit-down restaurant, and they've also got around the corner a takeout pizza window. Take a look at that sandwich board on there. I know, maybe you think it's cute. It says, husband daycare inside. <laughs> it's not cute. Ken's Pizza Pub is brimming with feminine hostility. Last week... Now, I've noticed this several times. Like all restaurants, they have been, it's been difficult for them to get staff. That's not, well, I, I would have said it's not their fault, but now I'm wondering if they're actually running their staff off. Um, so their takeout, uh, their takeout window, even though they have posted hours, you have no idea whether they'll be open or not. It is arbitrary and ad hoc. Uh, and don't you dare call them. Don't you dare call them on the phone and bother them by asking. Oh, yes, I've tried. It, that's a bother to them. So last week, actually, when I was getting ready to do the show last week, I took a break and I needed some lunch. And I, I thought, where can I get something quick? I can get two slices of pizza. I walked down to Ken's. I noticed that the open sign is off. So I was like, well, maybe they forgot to turn it on. So I walk up and I'm pulling on the door and the door's open. But then I notice a sign on the door. Mind you, there's staff in there. They're all in the same places they usually are in the takeout place. But the sign on the door says, and I wish I could show, I should have taken a picture so that you could see it. 
But, you know, you can communicate tone by the way you write, by the choice of font, by your choice of capitalization, by the words that you use. And this was customer hostile. It was all caps in bold. And it said, no takeout, no staff, too busy serving restaurant customers. The implication is clear. Don't bother us. You're not our real customer. It wasn't, you know, would, if this were your pizza place, would you not say, we're sorry for the inconvenience. We just don't have enough staff here. You're welcome to join us in our, in our sit-down site. Oh, no. No staff. Too busy serving restaurant customers. No takeout. Okay. Kevin was telling me about his last experience at Ken's Pizza Pub. This place drives him crazy. He absolutely, he goes into orbit when we talk about that husband daycare sign. It, that, that kind of shit from women drives both of us crazy. But this really gets Kevin's goat. Last time he went to get a couple slices of pizza, uh, it was about 30 minutes before closing, which is, I'm sure, probably why they resented him. Um, he put in his order at the takeout place. There wasn't any place to sit, so he walked around the corner on Church Street, which is our pedestrian promenade, Ken's has a cordoned, roped-off area where there are tables out on the cobblestones in front of the restaurant. Nobody was there. There were zero patrons. So Kevin just sat down at one of those tables to wait for his order to come up, and the blonde waitress comes over and says, you can't sit here. This is for our sit-down customers. She literally made him get up, walk outside the rope, and stand up because he broke the rules. It's not for takeout customers. All right. Are you getting a picture of the hostility of this place yet? So I walk away from the takeout area and I'm pissed off because this is the third or fourth time that I've walked over there and in the middle of the day during their normal business hours, they're just simply not open. I mean, I can be pissed off about, it's just irritating when it happens over and over again. Oh, trust me, I've learned my lesson. They're not getting another dime from me. I don't care if I'm starving. But then I walk around and I look at the front of the place and I see a new sandwich board, again, in cutesy, girly handwriting about husband daycare with little flowers and smiley faces on it. Passive aggressive bullshit. Then I look at the actual printed metal sign. This is new. It wasn't there a few weeks ago. Big sign right over the door into the dining room. Again, all caps, very aggressive. It says, be nice or leave. Okay, Ken's, fuck you, fuck you. I return your contempt. You have contempt for me as a customer, I have contempt for you as a business owner. If you wanna stay in business, have you considered reining in the bitchery that you're projecting? Yeah, I know, you don't have to care about it because all the Montrealers will come down and go in there anyway and they won't even know what you're saying to them because half of them don't speak English so you probably can get away with it. But what a shitty, shitty way to treat your customers. But again, audience, new normal. We're seeing more and more of this everywhere. All right, I called this segment mailbag but it's that's not quite accurate um, because it's responses I got on Twitter. I'm gonna read a thread that I wrote on Twitter because it's set up what I really want you to hear are the responses that I got. This is a thread I wrote on Twitter um, giving sort of an abbreviated 
summary of what it was like to grow up with a mother with borderline personality disorder. So I'm going to read it to you. It's got, This kind of stuff is going to be familiar to longtime viewers and listeners. But if you're newer to Disaffected, um, you may recognize something from your own life uh, in what I'm about to say. And after that, I'm going to read you a selection of responses from other people who also had cluster B upbringings. And that's the value of telling this kind of story, this kind of personal story, you see how many other people have also suffered through what you thought was your own unique private hell. Here we go. My mother has a personality disorder with strong features of borderline and narcissism. I do not speak to her because she is fundamentally abusive. None of her children and none of her family speak to her. She will die alone by her own choice. But she was not born this way. Like most borderlines, my mother was raised in an abusive household. Alcoholism, poverty, and personality disordered parents ruined her character. I am the firstborn in my family. And like many borderline mothers, mine turned me into a surrogate husband. She told me confidences that should only have been shared with an adult friend, counselor, or clergyman. Yes, that includes sexual things. But it was everything else, too. All of her insecurities, all of her fears, all of her failings and worries. And I was in this role starting from about age seven. Not uncommon. My mother was and is functionally just a girl. She's not a grown woman. Emotionally, she is stuck between the toddler and the adolescent stages. This is fairly good general description of what borderline personality disorder is. My mother has no real self-esteem. She has no true sense of her own identity, who she is. She has never been able to believe that anyone ever loved or cared about her. She, and she is so severely handicapped by this that she is also, in turn, unable to give love. Imagine hearing things like the following from your mother if you were a child. Quote, you don't see me as a woman or as a whole person. You just see me as nothing but your mother. I'm more than that. Or, quote, I have feelings too. Why can't you just let me talk about my problems and cheer me up a little bit? Why is that too fucking much to ask? This kind of behavior, this kind of statement is not appropriate. It's not allowable, and it's not helpful even in adult relationships. But I can tell you that it is pure deranging poison for a developing child from his mother. Emotional regulation gets passed down generation to generation. My mother bequeathed her neuroticism to me, and I spun that legacy into my own time of emotional dysregulation, alcoholism, promiscuity and pleasure seeking at the expense of my own health and my own peace of mind and at the expense of being a decent friend and a, and a person to have a relationship with. Today in 2023, behavior that is clearly within the borderline personality range is considered culturally normal. It's even feted, celebrated, especially when women do it. This is not normal. It's never been normal before now, and it shouldn't be considered normal now. 
And I guess what I hope to get across to you is if you see this behavior, if it happens in your own life, if it makes you uncomfortable, it's because you're right. This is not sane behavior, no matter how normalized it's become. Another way to describe a cluster B personality disorder like my mother has is arrested emotional development. And we can see how this characterizes our entire society. I mean, hell, we call 25-year-olds kids, and we mean it. It's not just an affectionate thing. We literally mean that we see them as children. Th again, this is new. When I was 25 years old, no one meant that a 25-year-old was actually a kid because they're not kids, are they? They're adults. They've been, had the age of majority since 18 and 21, right? No matter how much you love or care for somebody who has a personality disorder like this, you cannot change them. You can't make them feel secure enough to accept your love. You cannot fill the hole inside of them where a full personality should have formed when they were growing up. I tried for four decades to love my mother back to health. You wouldn't know it from how I am today and how I talk about her, I realize that. But I did truly love my mother, especially when I was young. And yeah, I, I am saying what you think I'm saying. I do not love my mother. I don't hate my mother, but I don't love her. And I haven't loved her for a very, very long time. That is also normal. It's not possible to love someone who even if she didn't mean it consciously, tried to destroy you. And that's what borderline mothers do to their children. They try to annihilate them. But I tried. I wanted to love her. I wanted to show her love, but she would not let me. Now, here are some of the responses to that thread. And I'm pulling them out because if I know that there are some of you who are listening to me right now that this is going to resonate with. And there's at least one person in this audience who has never heard this before, I hope. And I want, I want to give you a feeling of fellowship. I want you to know that you're not alone. First response from uh, Twitter user Tony T. She says, thank you. I searched for this type of connection because I'm going through hell right now, still reeling from my borderline mother's death and the fact that she gave her boyfriend $20,000 before she died as a way to punish my sister and me. The lies she told, mostly about me as the oldest, still sting. User hysterical lady brain. <laughs> nice one. She says this. This was really moving. My mother was, had narcissistic personality disorder and a childlike emotionality. I was not allowed a sense of self, and I was there to serve her immature needs. She was even jealous of me inappropriate behavior, etc. I woke up in my 30s and realized that I didn't love her for a good reason. User M Testing says, so much understanding and empathy sent out. My mother wrecked our family, almost destroyed me and then my marriage before I realized what was going on. User Tarmar Far says, a lot of this resonates me as a child of a BPD mother. The part where you say she will always remain a child is the most real thing to me. I don't blame my mother because her past was horrific and we did, in a sense, feel love from her. It was like we were her best friends. I'm gonna say something about that. That's, that's well put. In a sense, we felt love from her. 
borderline mothers can also make their children feel like their children are their best friends and that mom is your best friend. It's the thing with borderline. It's black and white. They go back and forth, hot, cold. I hate you. I love you. I hate you. Don't leave me. Right. One day they love you. The next minute you're the worst. You're not her best friend and she's not your best friend. Your mother or father, regardless of what your sex is and regardless of the sex of your parent, your parent is not your best friend. If this, some of this, some of you are going to experience this in a jarring way. I know you are, and I, I, I suspect I'm going to get um, some snippy comments about this. My father's always been my best friend. My mother's always been my best friend. Okay, okay, okay. They're not supposed to be. You can be adult friends with your parents, but they're still your parents. Best friend is something different. That's not the appropriate kind of relationship to have with a parent. It usually indicates that something is wrong. If you feel that, if you felt like your mother was your best friend and you were your mother's best friend or your father's best friend when you were 13, that's not functional parenting. That's dysfunctional parenting. Next response from Olivia's pincushion. She says, your description matches my sister pretty close. She's in jail right now for harassment and she will sit there. Everyone has distanced themselves or are no contact. It has to be that way. Yeah, it does. Granny panties. <laughs> One of our longtime viewers. Hey, granny panties. Always good to see you. She says this. Also a firstborn here, mine turned me into her mother. At 13, I was caring for my two younger sisters, and the youngest one called me mom. I was tasked to take care of the entire family and was physically and mentally abused every single day for my failings. The Danielle writes, I understand. My BPD mom used to hold a shotgun to her head and demand my preteen sister and I apologize to her or she would shoot herself. Love is a distant memory. I'm sorry, that one gets me. <laughs> the, the suicidal gestures that some of these mothers will make, people find them unbelievable, but they happen. That's one of the worst I've heard. My mother threatened suicide, but she never... She never held a gun to her head, and it, it's hard to explain. It's hard to explain what that does to you emotionally when your parent not only says she wants to kill herself or she wants to die, but she implies that you're the only one who can stop her. It is torture. It's torture. Final response. <clears throat> Katie says, my heart aches as I read this. <clears throat> I so wanted to give my mother everything she needed, but she needed so much. Since she had nothing to give me, I had nothing to give her. So thank you to everybody who responded to that and who told a little bit of your story. Because every time you do, at least one other person first realizes that she is not the only one who has been through this and that there's a name for it. All right, I want to talk a little bit about fairy tales again. Fairy tales have been the vehicle that we use to pass down foundational moral lessons to children, cross-culturally. Every culture has fairy tales. 
They teach about bad parents, bad families, good families, and about predators. Hansel and Gretel recounts what happens to children <clears throat> when their parents don't love them. It's a model of the wicked mother and the submissive father who does her bidding. You know, when you think about Hansel and Gretel, we think of the villain, the witch in the Candy Cottage. And she is the villain, but she isn't the only villain. Go back and read the grim fairy tale. The, villain are, the, the primary villains are the parents. There's a famine. The family doesn't have enough to eat. The mother conspires with her husband in bed at night and says, tomorrow we're going to get up and we're going to take the children out into the forest. We're going to leave them there and they won't be able to find their way back and we'll be rid of them. And at first her husband argues with her, wife, we can't do that to our children. And she responds by saying, they starve or we starve. And so he does her bidding. Those two are the primary villains in Hansel and Gretel. The witch is not the only lesson they're trying to teach. Little Red Riding Hood teaches children that costumes are not character. Wearing the clothes of a grandmother does not make a wolf a grandmother. But modern culture is reversing the moral of fairy tales. Today, parents and adults are deliberately breaking children's intuition and reprogramming it to make the children vulnerable. They're teaching their children not to assess danger, not to question someone wearing a grandma costume. It's depraved. Behold, take a look at this nice, pretty little girl standing in a park. Audio listeners, you're looking, you're not, you're not looking, you're not looking at anything. That's why you're on audio. On the screen here is a fully grown man, has to be in his 30s or 40s, wearing a little girl's flouncy dress with a petticoat that goes down just to crotch level and features great big girl diapers coming out from underneath. And he's hugging a dolly. Isn't that a nice little girl? Ugh. You wouldn't want to be mean to her by refusing to play with her, would you? Twitter user Label Free Brands, another really good one, puts it this way. Imagine a girl comes across this person at a park. Any immediate intuitions like creep alert would lead to thoughts of, oh no, I'm being a transphobic bigot. As such, the girl will be afraid to offend and more likely to approach the person who says, come here, little girl. She's absolutely right, and we see it all the time. Grown women do this, especially young liberal women. We see it in the Kappa Gappa Gamma sorority that let in Artemis Troon, Artemis Langford, we talked about last week. That audience is the result of reversing the moral of a fairy tale. We're seeing it. They are going up to the nice little girl because they don't want to be a bigot. And what do they get? A sex pest, a pervert who sits there with a heart on, watching them undress. And all of their female friends tell them they're bigots for saying anything. Yeah, tell me more about the patriarchy, ladies. All right. I'm going to close up the show by talking a little bit about the Middle East, but more about the reactions 
to what I said about the Middle East last week. Last week, I talked about the reaction to the Hamas attacks on Israel. Hamas terrorists murdered hundreds of young people at an outdoor music festival in cold blood, and they made sure to film it for Instagram. They raped women, and they did so deliberately next to the corpses of these girls that they were raping, their friends, the corpses of their friends, so that the rape victims would have to know before they died how very low they were, how they were trash, how they were objects, holes, not humans. Some of these psychopaths raped these women and children so badly that they broke their pelvises. You would think that all people of good faith would rally for Israel's right to defend itself and to take these psychopaths out. But you would be wrong. Politicians, Ivy League student groups, leftist political activists, the mainstream media, and the left generally will not do it. It's complicated, they say. You have to look at the nuance they intone. I mean, Israel's done a lot of bad things, hasn't it? So, of course, Israel really should temper its reaction and not genocide. Yeah, this is what they say about Israel defending itself. It's disgusting and it's revealing, too. Before last week, I had no real idea how many Westerners either hate Jews for being Jews or are so morally soft-headed that they would call on the victims of atrocity to exercise restraint rather than asking them how they could help defend their innocent. In fact, somebody on Twitter this week, I said things on Twitter very similar to what I said on the show last week. You know, I say the same kinds of things. Tweeted me, one of my followers tweeted me a picture of Adolf Hitler um, captured in a candid photograph with a couple of little uh, German boy and girl. And he said, I didn't know you were a Jew, unfollowed. Well, in point of fact, um, I'm not culturally Jewish. I'm not religious. Um, my father, who I never met, but my father was an Ashkenazi Jew. Uh, but my mother is English. So um, Jewish descent is matrilineal. Uh, so I'm not technically Jewish. But it doesn't matter now. I'm not, I'm not saying. <laughs> but I'm with the Jews on this one, okay? Hold your fire. Okay? I know right now what some of you are getting ready to tool up with your comments. Hold your fire. I have more to say. One commenter left this last week. This is, this is a short one, but there were several comments. It wasn't the majority of people. We've got a great audience, but there's always some. Really took me to task on what I said on Israel. This one says, Josh, I urge you to investigate further the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Your emotions took over and clouded your judgment, in my opinion. Dig deeper. Commenter. Yes, you personally. Which of my emotions clouded which of my specific judgments? Was it my distaste for the cold-blooded murder of civilians? Was it my horror at young women being raped next to the corpses of their friends? I know, rape is complicated and nuanced. Civilian murder has to be put in the correct context of a variegated tapestry and a long history of et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, right? 
A few other commenters sent similar, and some with a lot more detail. Here is my response to all of them as a group. Nothing that I just said in this monologue and nothing that I said last week included any of the following claims. One, Israel has never done anything wrong. Two, no Palestinian has any legitimate grievance about their living conditions. Or three, Israel is morally perfect in every way. I made none of those claims. I didn't make any of those claims last week. I didn't even say anything that reasonably implied those claims. Or anything that any viewer or listener could reasonably have extrapolated into those claims. When I took piano lessons for the first time in my 30s, my teacher would have to correct the mistakes that I had built up in between my lesson last week and the one that I was taking when I was, when I was practicing by myself at home. My sight reading for sheet music is very poor. Um, it's very difficult for me. Even with practice, it's really hard. Um, so it was easy when I was practicing alone for me to make mistakes without knowing that I wasn't playing the music exactly as it was written. I, I had no idea. And here's the reason for that. I have an exceptional ear for melody, harmony, and Western musical grammar. It's innate. Um, I'm a bad musician, but I have a really good ear. I understand music intuitively. My mistakes sounded good. They didn't sound like mistakes because they were all the correct notes from the right chord. They weren't the right notes for the score, but they were in the harmonic series, the correct harmonic series. So it doesn't sound like a mistake. If you didn't know the score, you wouldn't know from listening to my playing that I was making a mistake. And I didn't know for that, very, for that same reason. My teacher, Sylvia, said, Josh, you're composing again. You're not playing, you're composing. <laughs> she was great. I didn't realize I was substituting an E for an A, for example. And I didn't realize that I was inverting the attack on my trills or I was doing something else wrong. Several viewers last week were composing. They were composing my words, my thoughts, and the implications of my words and thoughts. They told me in the comments that I got in the wrong moral end of the stick. I shouldn't approve of Israel inflicting genocide on Palestine. Really? Really? And I, I you know, I, I, I struggled with this a little because, again, it's a, it's a small minority of people, and, and I don't, as a show host, I don't want to attack my audience, but, but you know, I'm a pretty accessible person. I'm a pretty engaged show host because I'm small. I'm not a household word. So I talk to a lot of people. Um, and I really, you know, I, I really would like these audience members to take this to heart and think about it. Because they weren't talking to me. This is a microcosm of what people are experiencing all over the place. The reason I'm harping on this is because I'm seeing other people subjected to these conversations from their friends, their colleagues, their workplaces, and it's, it's really disturbing to me. The people who said these things were not talking to me. They were talking to a character they had made up in their minds. They were not reacting to my words. They were composing my words. I don't think most of them knew this, and I don't think they meant to do it. Um, I think our viewers are good people, and almost all of them are, are people in good faith, who don't mean to misrepresent, and certainly aren't consciously trying to do it in order to get me. I understand that. 
But we are all in a state of extreme emotionality, and it is difficult or impossible when we're in that state to know when we're composing sometimes. But I would like to leave the audience with a few questions. When you read the news, when you converse with someone about what's going on in the world around you, particularly tragedy and atrocity, are you engaging with what the world is actually presenting to you? Are you genuinely conversing with that other person in a rational way that recognizes what that person actually said? Or are you composing? Thanks for watching. We'll see you next week.